welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. I'm joined by my co-host Justine uh, and guests Byron and James to talk about the Friday protests uh, across the country, a range of different farming groups um, and associates driving into cities and towns on, on tractors and utes to protest a range of different, um, pretty diverse, uh, sometimes reactionary or, or slightly uncovered issues. Yeah, welcome to the cast, folks. Yeah, cool. thanks for having us. You know, Carl, I just want to say before we start, um, as the co-organisers of these protests, um, just announce our co- conflict of interest. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. We've been we um, we busy. One, yeah, yeah. One of the other two hundred is actually <laughs> these farming protest groups. Yeah. Um, yeah. Byron, did you just want to give um, a quick intro of of what you do? Because you obviously you have your own content um, and, and channels uh, that people support out there, and, and doing a bunch of work in regards to some of this more reactionary, um, these more reactionary groups. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, uh, can you give us a, a quick rundown? So I do I do a YouTube channel, which is mostly about the New Zealand far right and sort of adjacent topics, uh, including the conspiracy theory groups, because there's been quite a bit of overlap between the far right and and conspiracy theories. Uh, And I want today to talk a lot about uh, Agricultural Action Group, who I'll get into more more later, but they're a, a group founded by three former advanced New Zealand candidates who have been backing these protests that were happening. So... And I think that explains a bit about uh, some of the signs and things that we saw up here at the protests. So I'll be be talking about that today. Yeah, I think, um, and you know, I said this just before the cast, but I, I don't think any of us think that there aren't possible issues here. I, I think it's pretty clear that rural New Zealand in general uh, gets a bit of a short end of the stick politically. My major concerns uh, are the way that some of those issues are being used and engaged with, um, mm. both by people with political platforms and some of these uh, conspiracy groups that you've mentioned, Byron. Uh, and the way the media hasn't really covered it effectively to unpick that and actually create a, a good discussion or, or discourse about it. Yeah, like it's really important not to minimise the, um, you know, the shocking levels of um, mental health, a uh, mental illness um, within rural communities. Um, and the struggles that many um, agricultural workers sort of endure. Like, I like I think that's really important, like, kind of context as well. And I also think that it's important to remember the class dynamic within agriculture, you know, like, who's, you know, like, there's the owners, agribusiness, and also um, the workers. And I don't, and I think, like, it's, you know, fair to say that a lot of this is being driven by vested interests rather than necessarily representing all of the sector, you know, I, I feel like that's really important because, like, I, I never want to minimise the fact, like, you know, you there are shocking statistics around suicide rates um, in the agricultural industry and among agricultural workers and farmers. So I, I just, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to just recognise and not at all minimise, you know what I mean? Because mm. I think, yeah, we, you sort of, you know, you see the reaction in kind of some circles in media and it is it is really dismissive and kind of just immediately jumps to, oh, look, they just don't like the Labour government or whatever it is. but they're especially now that there are some real issues that are exacerbating the kind of struggles you're talking about, Justine. So um, I think that is pretty important to get clear kind of right from the start that this is not a, 
you know, not all phantoms. <laughs> Do you want to um, kick us off then, Byron, and, and kind of get into some of the work you've done around looking at these groups that have been involved with these protests outside the wider farming community have kind of uh, inserted themselves into the into the discourse. So I thought I'd just start by looking at what the what the protest was actually about by going through the position statement that was released by Groundswell. So they had seven points there. First one is the national policy statement on freshwater must be scrapped. Um, national policy statement for freshwater came into effect last September, provides local authorities with updated direction on how they should manage freshwater under the Resource Management Act. You can read more about it um, on the Ministry for the Environment website, but essentially it's about prioritising the health of bodies of water, and it does this through things such as uh, tougher national bottom lines for levels of ammonia and nitrate toxicity. Uh, so their first statement was to, to scrap all that. Uh, number two, big stick regulations for significant natural areas such as wetlands and landscapes must be abandoned or rewritten immediately. This one is one of the, like, immediately after I read this one and then enter the flooding um, over the yeah. last couple of days, I was just like, wow, what a terrible juxtaposition. Mm. Yeah, so so significant natural areas are remnants of native habitat, places where rare or threatened, threatened uh, plants or animals are still found. Uh, Resource Management Act requires their protection. And a big part of the reason that they're important is that there are more than 4,000 native plants and animal species in New Zealand at risk of extinction. Uh, the reason groups like Groundswell are opposed to SNA regulations are that most of these significant natural areas are on private land and having part of your land designated as a significant natural area places some limitations on what you can do with that land. So for example, you wouldn't be able to intensify stock grazing in these areas. I think that's, um, and I, I guess we'll come to it later as well, um, but this leads to some of the talking points that we've heard elsewhere around there being a land grab, right? Mm, exactly, yeah. Number three, uh, the national policy statement on Indigenous biodiversity should be scrapped. Now this policy is under development, it's not actually in effect yet, uh, but similar to the national policy statement on freshwater, in this case about protecting biodiversity. The Groundswell position statement states, it is essential to protect landowners' private property rights. So it's so a similar thing to that earlier point about um, SNAs as well as the, the freshwater one. Point four was quite interesting. Um, seasonal rural workers from overseas should be prioritised through MIQ. So it should be fairly obvious what they want here. They're wanting the ability to bring in more workers from overseas due to the labour shortages caused by the pandemic. And I also was pleasantly surprised to see them saying in their statement, government must stop calling these workers unskilled labour and instead refer to them as skilled manual labourers. That's what they are. And while I'm personally sceptical that many of these farmers will be paying these skilled manual workers a living wage, it's nice to at least see that acknowledgement there. That, that really shows off the point you were making before, Justine, about the kind of class dynamic within the, the who's behind this and the kind of that this is the rural gentry in a lot of ways and the kind of needs that they have that's that's driving this, that it's, it's not, you know, a, a cross section of the, the rural sector. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I think you could also see that with the um, expensive tractors they were all driving. These weren't, <laughs> these weren't the tractors of the agricultural working class. I, you could, I think they were like all, they were all new. They looked really pristine. Anyways, the ones I saw at least. I was backed up on the motorway for two hours um, in front of a tractor that said MAGA. So I was, um, yeah, not impressed, obviously. Hey, you um, know what, though? Like backed up on the motorway for two hours on a Friday afternoon is not abnormal. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But 
you know, um, I got to say, that's I, I've learned to listen from this in terms of tactics. This is not how you win supporters and make friends because I could just see the entirety of like Auckland, like in these, in our cars, just like, oh my God. Yeah, I guess we'll get to it's, that later as well regarding some of the um, signage, right? Mm, is the, the tactic that you've taken from this, you need a tractor. Exactly. Yeah. More blocking the motorway at busy peak times. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean, part of it works. Like, I'm not against it. I, I think that alongside, you know, these private property concerns and, and two of the um, previous three as well, um, again, just underlines the uh, divide uh, among some of the rural um, supporters of, of these protests. Number five, uh, the unworkable elements of climate change policy, which are crucifying farmers and growers must be withdrawn. Uh, despite the dramatic language, they don't specify exactly which elements they are referring to here. Number six, the Crown Pastoral Land Reform Bill is another big stick layer of regulation being applied to our high country farmers over and above existing council regulations. This unnecessary burden must be lifted. So this is a bill that's not yet law and it's going through the process to become law. And it looks to improve the way Crown Pastoral Land is administered and regulated. Uh, Crown pastoral land uh, refers to the approximately 5% of New Zealand that's leased by the Crown to farmers for pastoral farming. I didn't look too deeply into exactly what change uh, what changes will happen if this bill becomes law, uh, but the point the groundswell position statement is, is similar to the earlier ones. It's, it's opposing government regulation that will impact farmers supposedly in a, a negative way, so it's a groundswell is opposing it. This is another one which just amuses me and uh, terms of the conflict with its previous ones like we want we have private property concerns in these other cases uh, in this case where it's not our private property we also have concerns because yes. um, we want to use your land uh, like we want as well as our own land yeah no, this is about renters rights <laughs> that's why I helped coordinate it <laughs> okay number seven uh, the ute tax the government's clean car package rebate scheme must be scrapped as soon as possible. Uh, so this this is the one I think everyone knows about. It's also the most asinine. Um, Groundswell's position statement notes, there is no electric alternative to the ute. There is no alternative. The policy is clearly unworkable and merely another financial burden. I um, My friend actually spoke to some um, farming. Uh, so, you know, a lot of um, the, at the protest, a lot of kids were brought to the protest from rural communities. And she's, um, she asked, um, one of them you know what they why they were out there today and the child said well because the government wants to steal our utes and we're not going to be able to have dogs anymore because the dog goes in the back of the ute so the government doesn't want us to have dogs Jacinda is the worst prime minister ever so um you know are you sure she was talking to one of the kids at the protest like that should be an opinion piece and stuff i mean it's like at the level of the discourse that we're having yeah so apparently just wants to kill all the dogs mm-hmm. um in aotearoa no really good to hear from like the future national mp for rangatiki area yeah exactly. <laughs> just on the ute one it, it it does annoy me a little bit because eventually the the just from a purely business point of view the cost savings and the convenience that a lot of farmers are going to see from wider adoption especially of electric quad bikes and electric kind of on-farm machinery it's actually a real prospect and they you know some of the technologies are mature but it, it's, yeah that one we can come back to also why i think that one is a uh, getting the most attention um mm-hmm. out of the demands 
So while it's technically true at the moment, there isn't really an electric alternative to the ute. That's not necessarily going to be the case forever because advancements are happening in electric vehicle technology. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, the levy on new ute purchases isn't a levy on any petrol ute, it's a levy on high emissions vehicles, and the size of the levy relates to the emissions. So to give some examples, a new Toyota Hilux will reportedly incur a $2,900 charge, uh, but the Nissan Navara would only incur a $830 charge. And then there's the Ford FX4 Ranger, which is fuel efficient enough to come under the clean car emissions limit and can be purchased with $0 in extra charges. The other thing, of course, is if these vehicles are being purchased for business use, this is a tax deductible expense for an asset that will depreciate. Uh, so with that taken into account, plus the, you know, the cost savings from having a more fuel efficient vehicle, um, it's really hard to see the protest as anything other than an entitled whinging. For many people attending the protest, though, I don't think they'd even familiarise themselves with these seven things the protest was about and just took the opportunity to hear their grievances about the government. In that, sign, in that vein, we saw a sign reading, I'm a proud New Zealand farmer, not a Pākehā farmer, James Shaw. Uh, a sign suggesting Te Reo Māori was being shoved down our throats. A sign reading, communism plus fish and chips equals your worst nightmare. <laughs> I didn't I'm see that one. I'm guessing as a reference to Jacinda Ardern having worked in a fish and chip shop when she was young. Um, and of course, there was a sign comparing Ardern to Robert Mugabe and at least five signs comparing her to Joseph Stalin. Yeah. Um, and I do regret the Stalin signs, actually, because I thought... <laughs> Just, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah, the thing, I, the thing I found interesting about the Stalin signs, though, is that those weren't all handwritten. Like, someone had actually gone and printed those ones out. I don't know how widely they were distributed, but that, that yeah. one at least had some organisation behind it. Yeah, so I saw, I saw five of them in, in photographs, and they were all identical, which is, yes, somebody's been making these and just handing them out to people. Like, Here, put this on your, you put this on your tractor. Um, and people are, hopefully some people looked at it and was just like, no, fuck off, mate. But um, obviously some people were like, oh yes, this this expresses my sentiments. I will put this on the tractor. Yeah, like if, if you wanted to be there kind of making the protests look bad and, um, you know, a bit of agitprop is probably not <laughs> a bad sign to come up with. But what is it, Pose Lord? You can never distinguish irony from sincere belief. Yeah. Mm. So as well as the uh, the Cindy Stalin signs, I did see a photograph of a sign reading uh, no to commie bitch rule with commie spelt C-O-M-Y um, and a ute with a New Zealand flag and a sign reading Kiwis do not want communism, Jacinda. So I see my purpose coming on the show today is to try and provide some answers to questions like who the hell are these people and what are they on about? So we're going to talk about the Agricultural Action Group. Agricultural Action Group was founded by Robert Wilson Fred Roberts and Heather Mary Pennycock on election night 2020. Something these three people have in common is that they all stood as candidates for Advance New Zealand. After Advance failed to make it into Parliament, the three of them resigned from the party to focus their time on this new group, targeting rural New Zealanders with the same kind of conspiracy theories that Advance New Zealand had became known for. Heather Mary Pennycock was a guest on the first episode of Counterspin Media. This is a New Zealand-based talk show that streams two episodes a week on GTV, the streaming network founded by former Trump advisor Steve Bannon and billionaire Chinese dissident uh, Gua Wenguei. GTV is a significant source of fake news and misinformation, so much so that if you share a link to GTV on Facebook, it'll automatically be deleted and your account restricted. So I do have a clip here of uh, Heather Marie Pennycock on the show. What, what other um, initiative, it's not really an initiative, is it? What other 
devastating piece of legislation has the government come up with to further put the boot into the uh, local farming uh, communities? Actually, there's so many, Calvin, I could talk all, all week about it, but another one which um, really makes me angry for the amount of lying that's going on about it is all the climate crises legislation based around this <clears throat> theoretical climate catastrophe, and there's a lot of science which will be coming through onto our website to prove, even peer-reviewed international stuff, yeah. which proves that this is a farce. Yeah. This, what annoys me is the amount of misinformation deliberately spread by the government about that. They have told us in their official statistics that we produce 80 million metric tonnes of carbon emissions per year. That sounds like a lot. Yeah. Let's put that in perspective, if it was true, and I'm about to tell you that it's not and give you the truth, but anyway, 80 million metric tonnes is way less than 1% of the total world emissions. So our government is willing to just decimate our entire agricultural industry to make less than 1% of difference. Again, makes no sense. What's the hidden agenda to actually decimate the agricultural industry? Yeah. Stalin did it. Look at your history. You want to bring in communism, you take out the farmers first. They're self-sufficient. They often have firearms. They Look can feed the population. Firearm stuff. Yep, they can feed people and they can mount resistance. So they're targeted. <laughs> Oh man, that's like a real kind of rural Fuck. conspiracy bingo card there. Oh, less than 1% oh. of emissions. Oh, you know, know your history. Stalin took out the commun- <laughs> the farmers first because they're self-sufficient. They've got firearms. <laughs> yeah, that's a, one of the actually, if this is, you know, if these people get a significant voice or if they're able to capture some of the, uh, of the movement, they, they're people who want armed resistance to, you know, to climate policy. It's, yeah, it's worrying. This is extremely disturbing. And this is the thing, right? It's it's easy for us to, to laugh at a, a clip like that because of kind of how completely unhinged it is. But if you've got people like that, and maybe you sort of get more into this, barn, but if you've got people like that within this movement who are pairing their concerns with those of, you know, the other aspects of the rural community who have real grievances, whether they're legitimate or not, is a different question. Um, that's the bit that worries me. And that sort of goes, it's like, oh, okay, you know, first they laugh at you. Yeah. I, I, no, absolutely. And I think, like, um, there is a worrying sort of um, coalition, right, between um, aspects of the global sort of far-right uh, conspiratorial anti-vaxxers and you know elements within the farming community and it definitely seems like the um like an emerging kind of reactionary movement in New Zealand I don't know it's not very popular you know right now but I don't think it's anything to laugh at and I mean you know we've talked about it right like we definitely have seen these movements um in other countries and we've seen like leaders who have risen to power on the backs of them um which you know so that's it's not something to take it's definitely not something to take lightly or laugh at because it, it does I mean I think it is a real like threat to I, I mean it, it I mean this is like this is proto like fascistic politics it is I mean it, re- it really is the the reference to communism especially like it's like the specter I mean it's 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 such a joke because like honestly can we just like have a real socialist government that we could have real like red scare you know mockering <laughs> about I mean Jesus like 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 comparing Jacinda to Stalin, I mean, she's like, she's like, it's like Tony Blair's Stalin now. That's where we're at. 
you know it's just it's so absurd you i mean that's the absurdity of it really is like it's a reaction to nothing it's a reaction to it to to a third way politics that doesn't really want to change the status quo anyways so we've got agricultural action groups spreading the idea that climate change is a farce and the government is using this farce to decimate the rural sector in order to implement communism i doubt a huge number of farmers watched that episode of counterspin media but the group has also been holding meetings throughout provincial New Zealand. They're getting in some instances up to 200 attendees. So these ideas about fuel emission levies being part of Jacinda Ardern's sinister communist agenda are being spread around. A couple of months ago, I wrote a two-part article on fake news in New Zealand for David Farrier's Webworm. And as part of my research for that article, I sent a longer version of that clip from Counterspin to James Renwick to get his comments. James Renwick is a climate scientist and was lead author on two intergovernmental panel on climate change reports. He described the interview as fake news galore. And to quote from his response there, first up, the talk of theoretical climate change, how it's a farce and so on, this is just wrong, regardless of whatever science Ms. Pennycock is pulling up on her website. Yes, the government has declared a climate emergency, but there are no emergency provisions. The PM has pledged to make the public service zero carbon by 2025, but that's it. Now, Penny Cook had also made some comments about the unavailability of electric tractors, which is echoed in the groundswell position statement. Uh, James Renwick noted that battery technology and energy density is continuing to improve, so it's reasonable to assume that by the 2030s, electric tractors will be feasible. Presumably, that'd also be the case for um, electric utes. Regarding your comment that New Zealand's emissions are less than 1% of global emissions, he said this. New Zealand's total emissions are indeed small on the international scale, but per head of population, we are right up there. This would be the case for any group of 5 million people in any developed country. We are only a small emitter because we have a small population. This is a global problem and all countries need to act. There is no disinformation deliberately being spread about this. There is no plan to decimate the agriculture industry. Farmers are not being targeted, even if they are mostly self-sufficient and have firearms. So it's difficult to gauge exactly what influence um, AAG is having in provincial New Zealand. Uh, they're not the first people on the right to call these moderate centre-left politicians communists. And some of the farmers who did so, did so at the groundswell protests may have done so without any influence from AAG. Um, it's worth remembering, though, that Advanced New Zealand received 28,000 votes last election. So while these conspiracy theories are a fringe, they're not necessarily as marginal as we might think. Uh, nonetheless, not everyone who has attended, attended an AAG meeting is necessarily left with a, as a convert to their way of thinking, and there has been a growing backlash against the group in, in rural New Zealand. When a tweet I wrote about AAG started to spread beyond my usual audience, I was contacted by Andy Thompson, host of The Muster on Hokonui Radio, home of rural news from Otago and Southland. Uh, and what Andy said to me was, Mate, I suspect you and I may not agree on a lot of things, but I know we agree on the AAG clowns. He sent me the MP3 of his editorial on the group from his radio show. I've got a short clip here because I suspect the overlap in audience between one of 200 and the muster isn't going to be very big. So listeners won't have heard this yet. Hey, you might be surprised, uh, actually. <laughs> I want to uh, cover off something that happened yesterday. I made some comments about the Agricultural Action Group. Um, and I said they're a bunch of idiots and they're full of bullshit. Actually, I believe that even more now because I spent quite a bit of time last night going through this, This, you know, I'm doing God's work here, going through their Facebook page. You're going to do a bit like Groundswell are, and if you are going to stick to your knitting Agricultural Action Group, question 
unworkable environmental legislation. Talk to farmers about that. See ways to deal with that. If you're going to question bioscience on nitrates and all that sort of stuff, fantastic. That is your job. Stick to your knitting. If you are going to mix it with a bunch of unsubstantiated conspiracy theories, Agenda 21, uh, Agenda 202030, if you're going to talk about the Great Reset, all of this nonsense, um, I've read all that, uh, and, and it is a lot of cherry-picking nonsense. You are taking uh, some facts of some things and then interpreting the way you want them to be. Um, scrolling through... So, farmers, if you're interested in talking to these guys, let's just go through some of the other things I found in their Facebook page last night. So these are all stuff on the Agricultural Action Group Facebook page, stuff that they have shared. So by... And don't give me this crap that just because you're sharing, you don't agree with it. If you're sharing it, you want your audience to know it. Uh, anti-climate change nonsense, COVID conspiracy nonsense, anti-vax nonsense. Now, they put the high priest of anti-vax, Robert F. Kennedy, on there. Uh, Anti-Bill Gates nonsense, eugenics, talking about um, banning meat, also talking about uh, the fact that um, uh, that meat is going to be banned and that Bill Gates is buying up as, as much farmland as he can so he can stop um, the production of meat. You know, this is just nonsense. Uh, Anti-1080 on there, um, Another one, geoengineering weather. There was an article that they shared about the hailstorms that devastated uh, Mochuaca earlier in this year and, and linking it to this nonsense of geoengineering weather. I'm sorry, it's just crap. Um, they also shared a conspiracy theory from January, which is the January 15th lockdown. Apparently this was happening. Well, sorry, that didn't happen, right? They, a, a lot of what, what they do is they share YouTube videos from self-appointed experts on things that don't even exist, okay? <laughs> well, that's good to hear. <laughs> I think no, you might be surprised I, about how much we agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that is, the, like, it is genuinely good to hear that there are those kind of voices of, you know, authority or people who have an audience that is probably a bit different from the, the one or 200 audience who at the very least are encouraging people to live in reality. Um, and I forget. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. That's encouraging, but you've got to laugh at, you know, Bill Gates buying up land to ban the sale of meat. It's like, no, Bill Gates is buying up land because it's a really good investment. So um, when Andy says there is doing, doing God's work, I, I thought that was a fair comment because I've, I've wanted to do a really deep dive into AAG for a while, but I, I haven't found the time. Whereas he's, he's obviously spent a lot of time watching their, their live stream videos, which seem to be their preferred method of communication with their audience, which does make research hard. You can't just search for keywords. You've got to watch these 10-minute rants. But he's, he's gone through and done that and had a good look at what they're sharing on, on social media. Two others who have spoken out against AAG after attending one of their meetings were Otago Federated Farmers President Mark Patterson and Clutha Mayor uh, Brian Cadigan. Patterson told the Otago Daily Times that he believed AAG was playing into rural residents' genuine concerns in order to further its own agenda without addressing the, quote, real issues. There's a quote from him. Pretty early on, there were some wild conspiracy theories being peddled regarding the United Nations, Agenda 21, and that organization's leading of a shadowy global cabal dictating to our government. Having worked within government, frankly, that's nonsense. But because there's an underlying tension founded on legitimate policy concerns currently, it could be persuasive for some, which is unhelpful. When he talks about working within government, that's referencing his time as a MP for New Zealand First. 
He also noted that a young farmer attempting to voice his concerns about the direction of the meeting was shouted down by other audience members. So evidently, while there were critics of AAG in the audience at these meetings, there were also clearly people who supported or at least sympathised with their message. Patterson told the ODT, quote, when you get people stirred up enough, it's easy to incite them to civil disobedience. In the interest of balance, the ODT did also contact the Agricultural Action Group for comment and quoted Heather Mary Pennycook saying, quote, some of the facts we present can cause a cognitive dissonance because they sound so insane. <laughs> oh, my Jeez, Lord. Oh, my. Not wrong. For yeah. people like Mr. Patterson to twist what we're saying and label it as conspiracy theory. And then Brian Cadigan said that calls at the meeting to deregister as tax-paying citizens and peacefully resist police intervention and activities on private property were, quote, undermining to society. What's really interesting about, you know, these last three people that you shared is that, you know, there are clearly some people in some smaller media who are covering the stuff from a rural perspective in a critical way, but it's really not what we're seeing um, from our more mainstream kind of ubiquitous media organizations in a lot of ways. Um, and I think we'll talk about that a bit later, but yeah, really great to see that there are people out there in these communities who are calling this out. Really uh, yeah, but we'd like to see it at a, at a wider scale, really. So the talk about deregistering as taxpayers and resisting police on private property, I suspect comes from the influence of the, the sovereign citizen movement. Uh, sovereign citizens believe they should decide which they can decide which laws to obey and which to ignore, and often don't believe they should have to pay taxes. Uh, sovereign citizen ideas are particularly American. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center estimates there's about 300,000 sovereign citizens in the US, but these ideas do get adapted for other countries that they spread to. So last year, the Christchurch Star reported on a man who attempted to argue in court that he was a sovereign citizen and not subject to New Zealand laws when he was arrested for driving without a license. And earlier this year, a self-proclaimed sovereign citizen with links to Billy Tikahika's public party one of the component parties of Advanced New Zealand, uh, refused a COVID test and managed isolation and described herself as a political prisoner. Back in the US, someone who was heavily influenced by sovereign citizen ideas was the cattle rancher Cliven Bundy. In 2014, after a 21-year legal battle over his refusal to pay fees for grazing his cattle on public land adjacent to his ranch, Bundy and his family ended up in an armed standoff with the Bureau of Land Management. The Bundys were supported by various militia groups as well as conspiracy theorist broadcaster Alex Jones, who turned up at the ranch to provide sympathetic coverage. If you want to learn more about that incident, there's a whole chapter in David Newart's book, Alt America, The Radical Right in the Age of Trump. And there's also an excellent seven-part podcast series done by NPR called Bundyville. I mentioned the Bundy standoff because listening to Agricultural Action Group talk about the government targeting farmers to implement communism and how farmers have access to firearms, combined with them telling farmers at their public meetings to deregister as taxpayers, leads me to suspect that in the case of a, a rancher having an armed standoff with a government bureaucracy, AAG would be taking the side of the rancher if not outright encouraging them. Like to think something like the Bundy standoff wouldn't happen here. And while I don't think the chances of it are very high, uh, that's a reason to keep an eye on groups like AAG. In an opinion piece he wrote for the Southland Times after attending that AAG meeting, Cluthamir uh, Brian Cadigan wrote, quote, What I experienced was most definitely not what I expected and, believe, and I believe as mere I have a civic obligation to bring my concerns to the public's attention. 
What I witnessed in two of the speakers was a careful manipulation, taking those present from legitimate issues to extreme political agendas and spicing things up along the way with calls that undermine the very fabric of our society, deriding virtually every institution that upholds law and order and inciting friction and disharmony. It's a really interesting observation from the Clutha Mayor there because it it really is, this stuff exists on a spectrum. Like at one end, you've got, I'm not actually a citizen of this country and the you know force of the state does not apply to me. But the kind of, at the other end, we don't want central government imposed regulations on us. We're opposed to the idea of being regulated. You can see the sort of pathway there that people could mm. get pulled down, which is, again, why it's good that there's these kind of antibodies in the, the system there against people like this. But, yeah. So to bring this back around to, to Groundswell, um, AAG had been heavily promoting the hell of a protest event. I sent out a tweet highlighting this, and that was the one that led to Andy Thompson contacting me. I also had a response from Sharon Patterson, who's the wife of Groundswell, co-founder Laurie Patterson. And Sharon said to me, this hell of a protest has nothing to do with AAG. Can you please remove the post as it's very incorrect? I replied that I hadn't said AAG had organised the protest, just that they were supporting it. And if Groundswell had denounced AAG or distanced themselves from them, I'd gladly share that information as well. She later sent me a screenshot from Groundswell's Facebook page, which stated they were only aligned with one other group, that being the Rural Advocacy Network in Canterbury. The post doesn't mention Agricultural Action Group and also states, quote, other groups may agree with our stance and in a free society, they are entitled to do that. So it struck me as a real trying to have your cake and eat it too type post. Mm. Um, it was enough to say they're not aligned with AAG, but at the same time, not doing anything that would alienate AAG from supporting them. Uh, the spin-off in their write-up about the protest noted that AAG had been supporting them, noting that, um, quote uh, from, from the spin-off writer, it's not unusual for extremists to attach themselves to more moderate protests, no matter what the cause is. Which I, I mentioned, because that's, that's certainly a fair comment, and I'm sure some of us have probably been at protests with some people we'd rather were not there. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Bryce McKenzie, who's the other co-founder of Groundswell, told the spin-off when he was asked about AAG, quote, they're involved in spreading the message about it. We certainly know who they are, but they're not aligned. But we're not aligned with them. They say a lot of good things. It's just some of the things they say that we probably stand a wee bit distance from. Adding, we prefer not to go too extreme. We are happy to have these people as a communication device and not do anything to, to push back on that, which I think is like a really key point of this uh, relationship. Because I, I think they can't, you know, they, to say they're not aligned with um, is not to say that we don't have a relationship with this organization. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. It really reminds yeah. you of Trump's comment that there were a lot of good people, um, you know, um, in relation to sort of alt-right rallies. Was that the Charlottesville rally? Which yeah. He made that comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of a reminder. Yeah, so, so it's very much uh, they want to keep their distance from these people and not be judged as being the same as them but they definitely want them out there spreading the message and attending the protests and, and they seem to be willing to you know willing to just have them there as supporters rather than denounce them or call them out the way that you know some people in in the rural new zealand communities have been doing like the, the people we've mentioned so on the morning of the protest uh, the new zealand herald reported that federated farmers national president andrew huggard saying there's a real risk of the agricultural sector being made to look like quote a bunch of fringe nutters, noting the big concern was offensive signage being brought to the protests, which would do more harm than good. 
And as we know now, that's pretty much what happened. I should note as well that as well as AAG supporting the protest, members of the anti-vaccine group Voices for Freedom turned up there with custom-made signs and Voices for Freedom branding. Uh, it wasn't just people with signs, though. Uh, the organiser of the Hastings protest told the crowd that New Zealand was on the brink of, quote, being taken down a socialist plug hole. Oh, wait, so wait, are they aligned or not? Or are they just organising some of the protests in some key cities? <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know if... Uh, if this organizer was part of uh, AAG, but uh, this is this is some of the speech that was quoted on stuff. This is just the beginning. We can't stop now. We are on a roll. I don't know what's going to happen next, but you can rest assured that the Groundswell Group has got this by the throat, and this is just the beginning. He told stuff it was crazy that the government was, quote, preying upon the very people over the backbone economy and said that the country was, quote, at a crossroads politically like it's never been before. Imagine trying to explain this to our fathers and grandfathers who fought in two world wars, many of them giving their lives to ensure that their children and grandchildren would have freedom and a great life in what they know as God's own. If we aren't careful, we will end up like Zimbabwe or Venezuela. I think I've got a bingo there on uh, far-right talking points. Yeah, that seems scripted, right? That seems like, hey, let's hit, let's hit some, um, we need to have this, this, and this. Uh, fit that all into a couple of sentences, please. Yeah. Well, thanks for the rundown. No yes, that was um, really, really useful in understanding a little bit. I, I like to think, I'm thinking now of the kind of like relationship between, you know, national and act in these fringe groups as sort of a human centipede where, you know, <laughs> it, it's being fed down and now like in the bottom, the last human centipede is obviously like um, AOG, right? Um, but definitely there is some, there is a relationship there that that's being not really, that's not, that's not being reported on by the mainstream media for yeah. sure. We're seeing, um, you know, you mentioned um, the Andrew Hoggard quote from Federated Farmers is saying there's a risk that it looked like a bunch of French nutters. Um, but something that you mentioned yesterday, James, was about, you know, watching a bubble form in real time, as we were seeing a lot of those um, signs and situations appear on social media while not being reported in the same way on network media. Yeah, it was, you know, I was sort of keeping an eye on the the main live feeds for your stuff, your New Zealand Herald's RNZ. Um, and with a few exceptions, you weren't seeing the the craziest stuff. Now, maybe that's coming from a place of they want to give a, an honest picture of what the groundswell movement thinks it is and what the groundswell's message is. That could be a, a you know legitimate reason for doing it. But I think the you'd have a very different impression of the kind of totality of what was going on with those protests if you had watched it on Twitter versus watched it on the six o'clock news. And that's kind of what worries me because that's very much, you know, one of the kind of key conditions for ending up in situations like what you have in the States, these these separate realities based on on what media you're consuming. You know, I, I, I got to say, I was disturbed by the, like, the difference between the mainstream media coverage and what I just saw with my own eyes. And that isn't even filtered through Twitter because I think, you know, there's also a bias there. Um, in any kind of media coverage is like it's self-selecting but you know as I said the first thing I saw was a um, mega tractor and I saw a I didn't even see that one on social media by the way no, yeah you should exactly. have taken a quick photo just oh I was driving um, 
very <laughs> responsible. I was stuck in traffic, so I should have taken a photo. Yeah, mega. I saw some like incredibly like fucking sexist depictions of Odin with like um depicting her as like a bimbo with like big tits and it was like really weird and I was like really uncomfortable. Oh, it was awful. And um sorry, I don't know why I said tits. That's so inappropriate. You should um censor me. Um <laughs> um and i saw yeah i saw um stuff about um maori like racist shit about um land grabs and maori and i just um that was what i saw like within a very short like time span just on the motorway in auckland um so i came away and i, I didn't even get the really the chance to look at much at twitter and that was my impression was like oh my like oh my god like you know, like the alt right have just descended on Auckland for a day, for a day. That's how, that was my impression. And then to like go, and then when I finally did get the chance to sort of look at the Herald and and mainstream media to see it being portrayed as like you know farmers are in the grievance about government policy, I thought, well, that's not what I saw. Um, yeah, that's just not what I saw. Um, and I don't feel that that was, you know, I, I think, uh, and I don't mean, to, and I, I guess I do sound a bit bitter, but I think, you know, if you have a progressive protest, I'm sorry, but that is the exact kind of thing that the media would emphasize rather than, you know, go out of their way to portray us in a respectable fashion and only the best kind of um, messages that we're trying to get across. It felt, that felt like there was just, you know, and I've been involved in many protests where um, the media is honed in, you know, like um, Palestine Solidarity um, protests, there's always a couple of cranks that show up to there and and, and the media is very interested in, in kind of drawing that out and making and sort of defining movements by their worst. And I didn't see that here. And so that was definitely an interesting contrast for me. Not to um, mention the coverage of, you know, protester aggression. Um, and police presence that is often you often see at uh, more progressive protests. Well, you know, um, I I've been to a protest that blocked off the motorway, um, the TPPA protest I think in two thousand fourteen, um, and the police were incredibly aggressive, and we were just, um, you know, I mean, obviously it's a pretty bold move to to go onto the motorway, but the police were pretty aggressive um, to see people in like vehicles, you know, these these um, these tractors and stuff to go on the motorway with police escorts. Uh, certainly, again, like, I, I I don't know, look, it's just my impression, and maybe I'm just bitter and twisted, I'm just a bitter and twisted old lefty, that <laughs> that, that feels like I didn't, uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I felt that there was a lot less police sort of um, response and aggression to what, to what my experiences are, but I'm not going to try and, and, you know, I'm just, that's just sort of, yeah, maybe I am bitter and twisted, but that is just my impression of it. Yeah, I think the media, the media coverage Perhaps they didn't want to, yeah, define the protest by its more uh, more extreme fringe. But in in doing, if that's the case, in doing that, they've kind of gone too far the other way and just completely ignored this aspect of it. And we're not talking just one person with a with a uh, problematic sign. We're talking, you know, numerous signs about Jacinda Ardern being Mugabe or Stalin and. Uh, the Hawks Bay protest where the, the organizers spoke about turning into Zimbabwe or Venezuela. I think this is an, an important important part of the story. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that these people represent everyone who was there, but it's not, yeah, it's not so marginal that it should be ignored. Yeah. No, and you need to to cover that and to to ask the questions of the actual organizers to to give the 
you know, less lunatic fringe people involved in this an incentive to, to distance themselves and to take the kind of actions that some of the people you quoted before took, because that's how you prevent this um, human centipede effect from kind of climbing further and further up the hierarchy into the point where you've got kind of major political parties aligning themselves with this stuff. Well, and the one piece of media I really saw out of any of the parties was that picture of Judith Collins uh, addressing one of the crowds in Blenheim, um, which then came out that they'd clipped it so that some of the worst signage wasn't in, in the photo, you know? Yeah, just, you know, there, there's, a que- there's a question around, you know, just reporting versus just analysis or, or reporting versus analysis and, and whether they had a report um, or and just cover everything fairly um, or to kind of dig deeper, you know, not all newsrooms have the time to do that. But I'm not sure that this even met the uh, needed bar to constitute effective reporting in a, in a lot of ways. Um, one thing I noticed really early on, for example, was even before the protest had started, uh, the number of news sites that were talking about thousands um, of people turning up to cities, um, it was maybe thousands across the entire country, but within a few hours after the um, protests beginning, they had been downgraded by some to hundreds. And, and that's in Auckland, which, you know, is, is the biggest city. And you had other, other journalists writing up as shutting down cities and towns across New Zealand, which, again, just patently didn't happen. You yeah. know, there's a lot of evidence that that didn't happen. So why are you saying it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the thing is, like, if I, if, if, if every time I protested, I showed up in a huge monster truck, I'm sure I'd be like physically take up more space. And that was, that was all it was. It was literally like, because they came with their enormous tractors, they physically took up more space. But I thought it was really irresponsible to portray it as this huge, yeah, groundswell, right? It was, I mean, it just wasn't. I'm sorry. Like, over the past year alone, we've had enormous rallies in Auckland, um, in you know, in the city centre. We had the Black Lives Matter rally. We had the school strike for climate. We've had um, the nurses strike, right? I mean, we had far more people show up to the nurses strike than uh, what was what happened here, and this got a lot more coverage. Yeah, it's about. Three hours notice on, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, we had more people showing up in Wellington at the anti-turf exactly. protest versus, you know, this well-organized long-term effort to get people to show up. Um, yeah, the kind of, the and it's, uh, I think it's, it's the framing point, right? You were saying, Kyle, that it's not like there's any actively untrue or misleading things being said here. It's what the media is choosing to foreground and what it's choosing to leave out, I think, is the the bit that, that worries me. Because if you don't intervene early and let people see, you know, some of what this movement is for for what it really is, it'll just keep keep happening. Um, yeah. And it does seem like there are people in the community who don't want anything to do with them. Um, but that doesn't include the organisers of Groundswell. Uh, and as you are saying earlier, James, it doesn't give them an incentive to either if you're not questioning about them, if you're not forcing them to uh, deal with it on the public stage. why? And they have been key in organising some, some things um, or, or getting outreach and communicating to uh, people that these protests are happening. Why would Groundswell uh, cut AAG out, right? Um, unless there is a consequence for that. 
which currently there just isn't uh, among established media. It's disturbing in the sense that you've got like well-respected people within the, um, the farming community, you know, um, presidents of the Federated Farmers, um, and local politicians, et cetera, et cetera, who are saying, hey, actually this these groups are, there's some disturbing stuff happening. But then you've got the National Party and ACT kind of throwing their weight behind these movements and aligning themselves in a very opportunistic, cynical way. I mean, they know what they're doing and they don't necessarily agree with all of the things thing, but they think that there's some kind of populist sentiment that they can kind of piggyback off, right? Um, and I think that shows you like the sort of depth of how cynical and opportunistic the National Party are being right now. They're desperate as much as anything. Because, because you know, um, the people that Byron, you talked about who called out AAG, these are these are not um, progressives. These are not Labour voters. Like, I'm sorry, these are... These are you know, the type of people who are embedded within national, like, they're conservatives, right? Um, but maybe they're a little bit of a more responsible type. I mean, I'm assuming, but I'm, I think it's a pretty fair assumption, right? Um, and so, yeah, it just shows you what's happening within the National Party as well, I think. It's really a good indication. Um, not to say, I mean, look, you know, and, and Bill English um, supported the those farming protests in Helen Clark's time as well, but I definitely think there's, like, a different... Um, there's something a little bit more sinister happening now, and I think it's because there is, um, yeah, these budding kind of relationships with the alt-right. And I, I see a lot of, like, parallels as well in how the media, uh, just in an attempt to sanitise things, and I'm not sure if it's, you know, um, yeah, I'm not going to get conspiratorial, but it's just, like, cutting out. Yeah, let's get conspiratorial. Okay. Uh, but cutting out, um, you know, cutting out uh, signs um, and, and not really being complete like yeah like um illuminating those relationships i think it's you know it just reminds me of the way that the american media treated the alt-right in the early years you know like um remember those weirdly like those weird profiles of richard seymour uh, just sort of profiling him like oh look at him he's a bit controversial a dapper Dap young fascist dapper, right? a dapper young fascist you know it's like um, yeah, it just... I, it just... I really liked your Freudian slip there of combining Richard Spencer <laughs> with David Seymour. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's... Uh, <laughs> be telling. It is telling. Oh, God, yeah, sorry. I've, that's You see, that's great. That's how irrelevant he's become that I don't remember his name. But, you know, yeah, Richard Spencer. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, quite concerning. I mean, you know, it really does... Um, give some credence to my theory that New Zealand is 10 years behind the rest of the world in terms of political trends. Cause I, I feel like this sort of thing is what we were seeing 10 years ago in other places and sort of just bubbling up and we're only seeing it now here. Um, and I'm, and I'm not sure we'll go exactly down the same road, but it's definitely interesting, you know, just on the, the point about the, you know, national party's involvement with us and sort of, you can take what they're doing in good faith up to a certain point. Like, oh, no, we're just here to support rural communities. But, like, once some with repeat behaviour, with Hepuapua, with the UN Compact on Migration, which was something that they decided to get into a few years ago. Act as well for it's, that. Exactly. It's kind of at what point do you stop taking, taking what they're saying at face value? And, oh, you know, it's just some interesting series of facts. We're just asking questions. Um, yeah, which I kind of, I don't know what the strategy is, but, yeah, I, I question that, that kind of, no, we're just here to support our people kind of. Attitude. Especially as we know they're um, implicated with some of the stand-up for women stuff as well, right? 
you know, they, they have people involved with the organization and, and running comms who are directly tapped into some of these alt-right movements. And so I'm, I mean, I, I'm never going to be charitable to National. I'll, I'll like, <laughs> I'm happy to have that on the table. Well, but I think, um, I'm just saying, I think National at the moment is about, like, their whole thing is, is wink, wink and nudging, nudging towards these. I, I think it's because Judith is to an extent like a true believer. You know, um, before she became leader, I remember people were just pointing out like the insane things she used to like on her Twitter about, um, you know, pedophile conspiracy theories, uh, like billing, uh, Bill Gates, et cetera, et cetera. Like she, she's a true believer to an extent. She really is like a Trumpian through and through. And um, I, I and, and that's why I think she's sort of so intent on going down this road, regardless of how popular it is or how successful she'll be as a politician. But um, it's definitely like about plausible deniability for them, right? It's like winking and winking and nudging and dog whistling, but oh, but you know, with the kind of like detachment enough to say, oh no, we're just uh, we're just asking some real questions. We're just wanting to debate things. And I think her 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 real um goal is to shift, you know, the the um the window of like debate really towards more reactionary politics she she is a reactionary i mean judith is um she's not very successful at the moment but she she's trying her best i think one of the uh major issues around that as well is that the media is so dead set on having this two-horse race um between labor and national that they're just they're willing to be incredibly charitable and to take some of the face value despite evidence to the contrary right and i think similar happened uh with the protests on friday uh and that they have a similar frame for the urban rural divide which has been a a part of our political language and political framing for well you know basically 100 years um and, and heavily linked to national and labor in particular for the last 50 or 60. i think the that that point about kind of pulling the discourse further and further to the right is a really interesting one and kind of why tactically national are so keen to be involved with this. And I think a big part of that is they're worried about their right flank because of the ACT Party. You know, we had ACT winning for the first time in rural areas in, in 2020. A lot of that was on the back of the um, gun guns rights activism. Um, but I think it's not just that. Their, you know, deregulate all the things kind of attitude definitely jibes with some of the messages we were seeing today. Um, and so I think that dynamic is, is really important to remember that when you've got this outrider there that you're now actually worried about, um, it changes your decision-making as a, as a party and as a party leader especially if you're maybe not the most strategically minded um, to be kind to, to Judith Collins um, and just kind of jumping at whatever's in front of you. I think that's a, a real driver of, of what we're seeing here. For sure. I think that's that's true. Um, and I think it's interesting the different relationships that um, ACT and National have versus Labour and the Greens because, you know, I think the right uses the more extreme factions to funnel through these radical ideas and to give them legitimacy, whereas Labour is, I think, not more interested in look in um, distancing themselves in many ways and, um, you know, and trying to, like, um, adopt a veneer of, like, respectability and going right. So I think that's really interesting. Like, there's always, I feel like there's a constant pull to the right from both sides 
of the political spectrum. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I definitely think like, um, you know, it's the same with the Democrats in the States and the Republicans versus like um, the alt-right. I mean, like the Republicans embrace the alt-right, whereas the Democrats have fought tooth and nail against progressives to, and and I think so, I think that's the pull to the right that we see on both sides, right? Yeah, it's a media issue as well, right? I think um, Alex Coleman on Twitter was mentioning this uh, just in the last couple of weeks about the way in which National is often not effectively challenged on act right-wing policy, um, but if Labour were to give anything to the Greens or if the Greens were to uh, do a press release on something particularly progressive, Labour would be hammered for it. Um, and, and I think that when they have that in the back of their mind as this is going to be the result of us, you know, for example, getting rid of benefit sanctions, uh, why, why would they bring that on themselves. And, I, you know, I think we should also talk about the the platform of Groundswell that, you know, Byron, that you went over, because I think a lot of it is really interesting. You know, I think the Ute issue is the funniest in terms of how much attention it's gotten. Um, I, for me, that one is basically just a cultural thing, right? Because as you pointed out, there's it's barely going to have any impact, really. And you, there's a bunch of choices you have to avoid paying the, like, pretty nominal kind of tax fee regardless. But um, but it's really about, you know, a cultural, right? The ute as <laughs> like a symbol of um, what is it a symbol of? I don't know. Like it's a symbol. Is Masculine it a sy- dominance and getting yeah. out into the land and conquering it. You know, it, it does. It, it has that to it. I think the other thing with it is it's the only issue on that list that also affects an urban audience. Like you can get into debates about the SNAs and about the the water rights things. Like in the end, someone living in Henderson or Remuera, wherever, isn't going to give a shit. Um, but the Ute one has this cultural resonance for people who want to, you know, drive their Range Rover or their the Ranger Raptor. Exactly, exactly. So I, I think that's why that one gets this culture war, yeah, kind of prominence. You know, I, I think on the other side of it, for people who are really concerned about climate change, there's also a cultural aspect, you know, symbolism with the Ute, where it's this enormous kind of like death drive, you know, like you get these people in the cities driving these enormous gas guzzling, fossil fuel using um, machines that are driving us towards, you know, planetary uh, like uh, crisis. Um, and I think, so I think like that's the tension there. And I think that's why it's gotten so much, ten- like so much, there's so much emphasis on that. Cause I know certainly for me, like I've, I sometimes am in the city watching these, um, you know, business people drive their enormous utes, which they have absolutely no use for. And I'm like, you know, what is this other than a death cult? I mean, I'm yeah. sorry. Like, Dropping it off to the ballet. Yeah. Like, let's talk about this, like driving, like the, the like popularity of these cars suggests something really like dark to me about um, where we're at as a society, like in the middle of, in the middle of a climate crisis. Whereas yeah, yeah, for them on the other side, there's a a resonance of it as yeah, being something about to dominate other people and nature really. Right. Is what, what are youths about? But um, yeah, I definitely think you're right. Like it's something that would resonate with city slickers and rural people alike. We love uh, our, they love, they love the youths um, as well as like, People who are concerned about climate change are really spooked by youths. I mean, I'm spooked the by youths. Is, is, the other thing is, I haven't seen, a, I don't think I've seen a single person who has honestly been saying, take people's work youths off them, right? Like, or, or that, you know, that people will be targeted by this fairly in all cases. 
most of the complaints have been about these urban um, high emissions vehicles, uh, which often, as as Byron mentioned earlier, aren't even always uh, within the the place where they are actually having to be charged, um, depending on which model you buy. One thing I, we we are um, coming to time, but one thing I just wanted to talk about quickly is where is some of this pressure coming from externally? Uh, maybe where is this funding coming from? Um, and you had mentioned, Byron, that uh, some of the members of AIG, um, Heather Pennycook in particular, um, had been on this alt-right global news network, right? So there's definitely like outside influences involved in this as well. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, like, like I said, I think the, the sovereign citizen sort of stuff is coming from from the US and just being being adapted for here, the uh, GTV, the the group that has the show, they're a New Zealand based group, but they're given a platform on this, and the group that's working with them for that is uh, Himalaya New Zealand, who are the local wing of um, Gua Wengui sort of global movement, which is. Um, primarily uh, a group that opposes the the Chinese Communist Party and um, they've actually clashed with some other Chinese dissidents as well it's a it's a complicated relationship they have with the rest of the Chinese dissident community um, but they've linked up here with elements of the far right who are also very opposed to the Chinese Communist Party who they see as having disproportionate influence in New Zealand and uh, through some things that maybe are a little bit true around the trade relationship with China and then things that are just completely untrue around like them infiltrating the government and, and that sort of thing. Um, so there's, I don't know how much money is coming in from foreign groups, but there are some resources at least like, hey, you know, we'll help you make a, you know, hourly talk show twice a week and give you a platform to air it and grow the audience there. And there's things like that happening. And um, Advanced New Zealand and, and the groups that have emerged in their wake, like um, Voices for Freedom and Agricultural Action Group, They've got the money there to print their uh, professional signs, even the ones they did specifically for this protest. Um, AAG are having people travel all around the country to host these meetings. With they're getting they're getting some money from somewhere, whether it's all completely self funded or or who's behind. Well, them. Voices for Freedom had a five hundred thousand uh, anti vax um, pamphlet drop in Auckland. Mm. You know, like that that takes capital. Yeah. So where do you see this, um, or what are your thoughts about where this goes next, Byron? I would, I would hope that um, AAG just sort of fizzles away with, with opposition, but I, I don't think they will. I think they're going to be around for a while because they've, they've, got, they've got a bit of a foothold there now. And, and like I say, Advanced New Zealand got 28,000 votes last election. And while the, the party's going to disband, I've heard they're not going to remain a registered party, but those those twenty eight thousand people, I don't think they're all just going to stop being conspiracy theorists. So I think there's there's um, going to be there's going to be that fringe there for a while. And of course, there are people on the fringe who aren't advanced supporters. There were people who voted New Conservatives or ACT or even National just because they wanted anyone but Ardern in power. And and so I think there's a small but significant number of people in New Zealand who are getting on board with this conspiratorial thinking and some of these some of these more alt-right ideas and I don't think it's I don't think it's going to disappear soon I think we're going to have to be 
vigilant about it for <laughs> for a few years yet. Hey, thanks so much uh, for coming on and sharing that uh, the research you've done on that, Byron. No problem. Um, and thanks, James, for uh, coming along as well um, and sharing your thoughts. No worries. Anytime. And thank you to Justine for coming along co-hosting. Uh, this has been one of 200. Thank you so much uh, for listening. If you have enjoyed it, if you think that this information needs to reach more ears uh, so that there are a few more people aware of some of the links across these organizations, uh, give us a retweet, uh, share it on your podcast app, give us five stars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're at one of 200.nz for articles and all our other content as well. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism